My name's Dan, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, at the end of each month, uh, we we we're kind of working through a series, and we're and we're calling it Ultimate Questions. And uh, and the purpose of this series is that we can grow our confidence in the God of the Bible. Um, so we're intentionally I, we're either sharing our stories. So you know, we we heard from Al uh, a few weeks ago, or we're intentionally looking at something maybe tough or something that maybe you think, oh, you know what, if only someone had an answer to that, or or I hope no one ever asks me that, because if they did ask me that, then I'd have no idea what to say. So, uh, and, and, and this really stems out of the understanding and the trust that what's written in the Bible is true, is, um, is um, yeah, it's, it's true, and we don't have to be ashamed of it, and it's unshakable. So uh, it's okay. Yeah, we we don't need our slides. But if you can get things up and running for afters, that would be awesome. Um, yeah. Okay. So while this is happening, you know, you will see um, a little bit of screens flashing. I think our computer's frozen again. We'll uh, try to make sure it's working for next week. But uh, keep your eyes fixed on me. I'm much more exciting. <laughs> All right. So... Yeah, the question for this week, our, our, our ultimate question is this. Why is there evil in the world and where does it come from? Why is there evil in the world and where does it come from? And for many of us, in fact, for probably everyone who's, who's lived on earth, this is a big one. It's a big, uh, it's, it's a, it's an issue for many people. And it's a problem that we all have to answer. So whether you're a Christian or an agnostic or an atheist or a Mormon or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Sikh or a Scientologist or a, or a Jehovah's Witness, uh, it really doesn't matter. We all have to come up with a reason for, for, for this thing, which is known as the problem of evil. Where does evil come from and why does it exist? Now, for us in the church, um, we believe in a God who, who is good. We singing it, we sing it in our songs. We've been singing it this morning. We read it in our Bibles. And the fact that God is good is one of our fundamental truths. Um, and it's also, uh, it's also one of the truths that really comforts us, especially in the midst of hard seasons of life. But we don't only believe in a God that is good. We also believe, or a God that is all good. We also believe in a God that is all powerful. That, which means that there's nothing that he cannot do that he wants to do. That, which, um, as long as it's in accordance with his character, who he is, which means he cannot sin. Um, and it also has to be logically possible. For example, um, God cannot create a married bachelor. He cannot create a square circle. You know, there are lots of people that ask this question. Can God make uh, a stone that's so large that he can't lift it? You know, well, that's, that's logically absurd. So that really doesn't fit under this. But God is all good and God is all, is, is all powerful. And so for us as Christians, this question, this problem of evil looks like this. If God is both all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? This is known as the problem of evil. And if, if he's all good, but not, not all powerful, then evil is able to be explained because although, though God might want everything, you know, to be perfect, Unfortunately, he can't because he's limited in his power, so it's not God's fault, it's out of his control. 
That's if God is all, is all good but not all powerful. And if this is true, then we would be worshipping a God who is well-meaning but ultimately weak. But how about a God that is all-powerful but not all good? So he can do anything he wants, but what he wants is for there to be evil. So he allows it and he's okay with evil because on some level he is evil. If this was true, then we would be worshipping a God who is powerful, but is malevolent, who means us harm. Which, I don't know about you, but that thought is horrifying. But neither of those options is what we read in the scripture. Here are some samples from the Bible about God being all-powerful. The first is Matthew 19, verse 26. You don't have to read it, but feel free you know, um, to write these down on your notes in the bulletin if you wish to. So Matthew 19 verse 26 says this. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then we turn to Job chapter 42 verse 1 1 to 2, which says this. Then Job replied, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then we turn into Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6, where it says, No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. So what we read in the Bible through it all is that God is all-powerful. Now, here's what we see about about God being all good. So Psalm 119, verse 68 says this, You are good, and what you do is good. So his nature is good, and his actions are good. You are good, and what you do. You do is good. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this, that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And then Psalm 34 verse 8, this is great because God's goodness can be experienced. It says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So here we have an all-powerful God and an all-good all God, but we still have evil, and this is a problem known as the problem of evil. And I would be surprised if this problem has not caused times of doubt or uncertainty for many people here. In fact, many people have walked away from the faith because of this thing. Maybe you know such people. Maybe even you are, you are, you are on that way yourself So I'd ask you to wait and I would ask you to listen. Because what we're looking at here is how do we as as, as Christians, how do we deal with the problem of evil? What is evil? Where does it come from? And why does it exist? So so the first question is, where does evil come from? Now, for something to exist, it had to have a start. Okay, that's logic. The only one exception is, is God himself. He's the uncreated creator. He's the one who started everything because, and, and, and that has to be so because for anything to exist, it needed to originate ultimately from something that always existed. Okay. For anything to exist, it had to originate ultimately from something that always existed, that always was. So, you know, the galaxies and the stars and the solar systems and the planets and the microorganisms and humans, if you go back and back and back, right right up to the beginning, there was a cause, and that cause is an uncaused cause, and that is God. So what about evil? If evil exists, which I, I, which I hope 
with what we've read in the news over this past week, we understand that evil exists. So if evil exists, evil needed to have a beginning. It had to start somewhere. So where did evil come from? What was its first moment where it actually came into existence? Now, there's this man called Norman Geisler, and um, he, he explains this problem of where does evil come from like this. He says, number one, God is absolutely perfect. Number two, he says, God cannot create anything imperfect. Number three, a perfect creature cannot do evil. I, I hope that you're, you know, you're able to keep up with me. Number three, a perfect creature cannot do evil. Number four, therefore evil cannot arise in such a world. Number five, but evil did arise in this world. Number six, therefore it seems that either God is not absolutely perfect or that God can create something imperfect. Maybe another way of explaining it is, is like this. Why didn't God just do maybe a better job at the beginning? Why didn't he create creatures that were not able to sin, that would not sin? If Lucifer had been, had been created better, maybe he would not have fallen in the first place. Or why did, or, or because of God's foreknowledge, why did he simply not create the angels that he knew would rebel against him? Why didn't God just create a, um, a, a man who did not have the choice of sinning in the first place, who would resist the temptation of that fruit? Or why did he just not create humans altogether? Knowing all that would happen, why did he just not weigh it up and say, you know what, let's just nix it all. It, it just won't work. And these are all really good questions, but first of all, we have to admit something. And the thing which we have to admit is that this problem of evil is not just a, th- a, th- a theoretical problem that exists in universities or on the bookshelves of pastors like me. Okay, We all have an interest in the answer to the problem of evil because we've all faced evil, and for some of us, evil has marked us, Evil has scarred us. Evil has left us with memories that we will never forget. And so those folks in Yonge Street over this past week, they came face to face with evil. And those folks in Syria, they've, they've been encountering evil for way too long. That hashtag me too is all about an ongoing evil that was hidden for way too long. And we see evil, we see the face of evil in warlords, in tyrants, in shooters, in Hitler, in Stalin. But evil is not just in the newspapers. Evil is in our living rooms. And so there are many people who are tragically reminded of evil in the face of someone who they trusted. Maybe it was a co-worker or a parent or an auntie or an uncle or a grandparent or a neighbor or a school teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a camp counselor or a pastor. You see, evil is a personal thing for many, many people. Evil for them comes with a name and a date and a secret that they're going to keep forever. And so, so these folks, and maybe you're one of them, so knowing how to bring together the concept of an all-powerful, all-good all God with your experience, this is of first, this is of, this is, you know, this is the most important thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me that I have no interest in worshipping a God who's well-meaning but weak. 
And I for sure don't want to worship a God who's all-powerful but malevolent. And so what I hope is that what you will um, have here today is some measure of comfort from answers, that these answers will, it will instill in you a confidence in God and comfort in your own life. Okay, so let's talk about the types of evil. When we, when we talk about evil, we're actually talking about two separate things. One is moral evil and one is natural evil. Everyone say moral evil. Everyone say natural evil. Good. Okay, so those are the two types of evil. And moral evil is evil that is committed by human beings. Now, natural evil is, is generally something that's out of the control of humans. Things like um, natural disasters, floods, earthquakes, tsunamis, um, being, being attacked by a bear, lightning strikes, cancer in someone that's never smoked in their life. These things are natural evils. And so with moral evil, we understand that there's a person who is to blame but, but sometimes we can wonder, why, why didn't God actually do something there? Why didn't he insert himself into the middle of that and not let that happen? Why didn't he do something? But with natural evil, we want answers. What is the sense of a tsunami that wipes out thousands of folks all at once and leaves a region economically ruined for years? And while I was serving on the mission ship Logos Hope, we, we met many people who encountered both moral evil and natural evil. One time we had an event on the ship for pastors who were from this region in the Philippines that had been ruined, absolutely ruined by natural disasters. And so for a short moment, we, we had an opportunity to really pour into their lives. They, they gave and they gave and they gave and they served and they served and they served in the hardest, um, you know, in, in the hardest life circumstances. And so we, we had that chance to minister, you know, to those who had, who had, who'd come face to face with this natural evil. And then there was another time when we hosted a large group on board of women, who were prostitutes who were involved in the sex trade in a place where there was, you know, where there were no rights, um, where they didn't have any protection or safety. And so we had no idea, or in fact, we would hear from them what they would face on a, on a week, on a week to week basis, earning money so that they were able to put themselves through college or, or, or that they would be able to look after, uh, after their families. And they faced moral evil over and over and over again. And the women on the ship were able to show, show Christ's love in the very simple way of, um, letting them have this spa treatment, washing their, uh, feet, you know, things like that. And there was this one woman, uh, after having, having, um, experienced that who said i knew god loved me but this is the first time i've actually felt it and we have our missionaries matt and nari uh, who are frontline warriors over there in cambodia who are facing off against this very real moral evil happening there so whether it's a natural or a moral evil we've all felt a huge impact and we're left with this feeling, with a question of or, or, or with a sense of this is not right this is not how things ought really to be. And so, and then we're also left with this longing for things to actually be made right, for things to be restored. We, our, our human response is that we 
want to be free of this evil which we see in this world. But if evil exists, then surely it means that the God of the Bible, he's not real. Surely evil existing proves that God isn't real, that he's, he's a myth, because this is how the thing, thinking goes. If God is all good and all powerful, uh, then evil cannot exist because he would do something about it. Therefore, an, uh, but evil exists, therefore an all, God, all good and all powerful God, which is the God of the Bible, cannot exist. But far from being an attack on God, what if evil was actually one of the greatest evidences for God existing? Let me say that again. What if the reality of God, what if the reality of evil was a powerful proof or evidence for the existence of God? Let me explain. Let's say we're outside and it's a lunar eclipse. No, a, a solar eclipse. And we're, and, you know, and you and I are watching it and then, and then I turn to you as the eclipse is happening and I say, wow, it's really dark. Well, the only reason I would be able to say that it's dark is if there's an objective standard by which I can measure, you know, the darkness. And so I only realize that there's darkness if light exists. And in the same way, if we're talking about evil, then there has to be some objective ultimate rule by by which we can measure this wickedness, this sin, this horribleness, this evil. Because if we don't have an ultimate standard, and this is really important, then all that I can do is fall back on my own personal opinion of what evil is or wrong is. And likewise, that's your only option as well. You can only say, well, for me, this is evil. And in the same way, you know, that me, I can only say, you know, for me, this is evil. So, but this isn't able to be, and let me explain why this isn't reality. Because if this was true, if, 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 if you could only fall back on your personal opinion and I could only fall on mine, then there's nothing to stop me if my own code of morality allows it to walk up to you and to kill you. And you can say nothing about it because who's to judge that your individual moral standard is, is maybe better than my moral standard. And so when we say phrases like, you know what, that's wrong, or that's sick, that's horrendous, how could they do that? What we're doing is we're invoking a higher standard. We're invoking an, an, um, a, a, a law that reaches over everything. And if there's an ultimate law, then there has to be an ultimate lawgiver. Because the only alternative for there being an ultimate lawgiver is for everyone around the world to merely do what is right in their own eyes. So murder, is it okay or is it not okay? Maybe maybe having an affair, is it okay or is it not okay? Maybe having an abortion, is it okay, is it not okay? If you cheat on an exam, is it okay or is it not okay? Practicing homosexuality, is it okay or is it not okay? Stealing, is it okay, is it not okay? That's what we're left with if there isn't an ultimate lawgiver. Now, interestingly, C.S. Lewis, and if you've ever read, you know, 
Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, you'd, you'd have read him. But uh, C.S. Lewis says that it was the very idea of evil that caused him to reject his atheism in the first place. Listen to what he says. He says this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has an idea of a straight line. And someone else worded it like this. We humans sense evil because we sense that some good has been violated. And then there's another reader, um, writer who says this. In order for objective evil to exist, uh, in order for objective evil to exist, obj- oh, sorry, I'm uh, having a little uh, stuttering moment here. In order for objective evil to exist, then then, then, then objective goodness, objective goodness must exist in a more fundamental way. I hope you could track with me through my, uh, through my pauses and my heavy breathing. So, so we know that darkness exists because we know what light is. And we know what sickness is because we know what health is. We know sadness exists because we know what happiness is. We know what that the cancer exists because we know what good cells look like. Now, we did our famine over this, this weekend, and those who took part can now say with authority, I know that hunger exists because I know what a full stomach feels like. So evil takes what is fundamentally uh, good and it twists it and it rots it like rust on a car. That rust would not exist if the car didn't exist in the first place. So, So rust needs that car in order to exist. But rust is a twisting and a rotting of what is what is fundamentally good. And so we know evil exists because we know what is good. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not sure if that's true. Well, let me prove to you that it is true. If so, you're you're in your car and you're driving along, and then and then your car, you know, um, maybe dies and it's no longer working, and so you know you, so so someone manages to, you know, to tow you over to a mechanic. He lifts the hood, he looks around for a minute, he closes the hood, he crosses over to you, and he said, "Yeah, it's fine." And so you jump into your car. And you turn the key, nothing happens. And you say, no, it's not. It's not working. Uh, it's not running. It's not turning on. And then, the, and then the mechanic looks at you and he says, an infuriating, well, it looks fine to me. He turns away and he walks off. Well, the only way that you can have a meaningful conversation with your mechanic is if, if, is, is if you both agree to this fundamental standard that cars should run. This is, this is the level. This is the standard. If you don't have that as a fundamental standard, then any trip to a mechanics is a waste of time. So what is true in the mechanics shop is also true about the rest of life as well. And what this means is that things should be running better than they are. We, 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 we know it. We see it. We, we know it. And the presence of a broken world and sin and evil is, is proof that a more fundamental, uh, uh, um, that a more fundamental good exists, that this is the way that things really should be, but what we can't do is simply take the world to a mechanic, which is a problem. 
So we've shown that, that this presence of evil is powerful evidence that God exists because without God as an ultimate standard, how would we even know what evil is? But that still doesn't answer the question, if God is all good and all powerful, then why does evil exist? And at this point, we're going to answer the question that I answered, asked right at the beginning, which is, where does evil come from if the world that God created was a perfect world? And the answer to this is two simple words, free will. Because when God created human beings with, um, that they could choose, he then created the choice that evil could exist. You see, it's, it's, it, there, there is no way that God could create a world in which human beings have free will and at the same time where choosing evil is never an option. That world could not exist. Because if God wanted to create a world without the possibility of evil, then he'd need to create a world of machines, of robots, creatures that obey but could never choose to do so. And so God didn't create that world. Instead, he created the much more wonderful world, this world, in which people are free to choose him, to love him, to obey him, to worship him, and to trust that he has their best interests at heart. But by necessity, that this world also has to have the option of people ignoring God and choosing option two, choosing choosing evil. So this is how a perfect God could create a perfect world that now has evil in it, because it's the only way that we were able to be free. So when folks um, want a world in which they are free, but there's no evil, they're asking God to create a world that logically cannot exist. Even God cannot create a world like that. So let me make a summary. So God created a perfect world of free creatures in which existed the potential of evil. And this perfect world of only, and in this perfect world of only good, Adam chose to sin. And ever since then, we've been choosing evil ourselves. And so the final question that many people ask, especially those that have been hurt by evil themselves, and remember, evil has a face, evil has a date, evil has a name. Um, so, so, so this question is this, why doesn't God just wipe away it? Why doesn't he just exterminate all that is evil? And so my response would be, where do you draw the line between acceptable evil and unacceptable evil? You know, we, we read in the Bible, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So it's saying that you are not righteous, I am not righteous, which means that if, that, 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 that if the Lord was to wipe, wipe everything out, which is evil, that we would be caught up in the judgment ourselves. Um, you know, like a net. Um, so... I actually don't think that we actually want the Lord to move in and to end all, all which is evil. We say that we do, but I don't think we do, at least not yet. Now we look at the world and, and we look at, you know, all of the brokenness and the sin and the crime, both the moral evils and the natural evils, and we want him to do something about it. And he says that he already has. Because in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, it says this, For God was pleased through, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Now, what this means is that God is, is that what, is what Christ did on the cross is that he did everything needed to actually get rid of moral evil and natural evil forever. And he's not only just done something about it in the past tense, but he's also going to do something about it in the future tense. One day, we, we will have a global judgment event, which will, which will take place when evil is done away with forever and when justice reigns, when we get to see, uh, in its fullness what, what a, what, what a world looks like, where God's ultimate standard of righteousness is lived out. And those who choose Christ, um, will live in that world, and those who don't will actually get what they want, if they've lived without God in this life, then they'll live without God for the rest of life. You know, but the question is, why hasn't God wrapped things up yet? With all of the pain and the suffering in the world, which has come from evil, why has he not yet said, okay, that's enough? Why has he not brought an end to evil once and for all? And the main reason for this is, the, the, the main reason is because he's keeping the door to his kingdom open for as long, long as he can to let in as many as he can. Remember that we have to choose him. And so God is, 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 is waiting there, longing to shut the door. He, he grieves, he mourns, he sees all, all, all that is happening. He, he weeps over it and, and, and he, he longs to close it and bring it to end, but he's holding it open because there's more and more, more and more folks coming in. And so he's there holding the door and he's saying, you can come in. It's still open. It's his mercy that is holding open the doors. Uh, we read in Second Peter chapter three verse seven, and feel free to turn there if you want. Second Peter chapter three verse seven says this. It says, "By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for, for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." What, which means that one day the problem of evil will will be dealt with once and, and for all. But then verse 8 says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And what this means is that God is not in a rush like we are. He stands outside of time and he sees all of history and all of future at once. And so he's really patient. And why is this? Why is he patient? Well, verse 9 explains it to us. Um, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as in, in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but, but everyone to come to repentance. It says that the Lord is not slow. It says he's patient with you. It's easy to look out at the world and see all of the wickedness which is happening. It's, you know, and, you know, and then to groan and moan and say, Lord, how long? But what about the evil in here? You know, it's it's he. You know, here it says that that God's not just patient with everyone else; He's patient with you. It's not with the super bad sinners or the super evil who are, who are there in the in the newspapers. He's patient with you. You are the evil one that He's patient with. And so we, we like to, to make a line in the sand and say, after this line, that is evil. I'm on this side of the line, but after this line, that's evil. Rape, that's evil. Murder, that's evil. Racism, that's evil. But what about my own thoughts in the privacy of my own home? Well, that's just me 
being human? What about, you know, that I lashed out being really angry? Well, that's just because of the bad week which I had. What about the way that I tear someone's reputation apart? Um, well, that's just an area of growth in my life. So we are quick to, to make this line which separates us from, from, from evil. And so we say, well, God should judge those folks. He should sort out them once and for all. But he could only do that if he dealt with us in the same moment. God is patient with you. You see, for, for, for him, we're all on the other side of the line. We are all those folks. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the problem of evil ultimately is you and I. Now, what I'm not saying is that we're all the worst that we could ever be. But what I am saying is that the problem of sin, the problem of evil, has wormed its way and stained every part of our lives. But still, God is holding open the door. And he's waiting for you and I, who are the, who are the problem of, of evil, so that we can come home, so that he can welcome us in, and so that we can be accepted through Christ. So, so for someone who's been wounded by evil, your hope is to trust in Christ. And for someone who's, who knows that you are the problem of evil, you know those things which you have done, your hope is to trust in the person and the work of Christ. So let's wrap up. How could an all-powerful God and an all-good God create a world in which evil exists? The answer is because, yeah, the potential of evil was the price of our freedom to choose him. God wanted people that loved him, not just robots who serve him. We also ask this question, why doesn't God make an, e- an end to evil once and for all? The answer is because that, in- that would include you and me, and he's w- patiently waiting until the last person who will choose him freely comes home, and then the end will, will come. Now, there's so much more which I could say about this, and maybe you have many more questions. Well, read, read, read what's in the Bible. Learn from it. You know, the Lord speaks through it. And we also have loads of books in the library that you can loan. And these all um, work through things like what we've, we've been talking about here this morning. Because you, you have responsibility, right? It's not just me informing you on Sunday morning, but you have a responsibility to inform yourself. And, and one way which you can do that is, is to read some of the excellent books which we have in our library. But let me leave you with this, which is a way to look at evil that brings hope. Okay? A way to look at evil that brings hope. And that is this. When we see how dark and sinful and evil the world is, it is at that moment that we start to glimpse how glorious and amazing heaven's going to be in contrast. Let me say that again. When we see how dark and sinful and evil the world is, it is at that moment that we can start to glimpse how glorious and amazing heaven is going to be in contrast. It's not by imagining harps and clouds and hymns singing that we start to get excited about heaven. How we get excited about heaven is we look into the depths of the cesspools of wickedness and evil of this life. 
Because however deep and dark and horrendous those depths of evil look right now, the glories of the new heaven and the new earth, in contrast, are going to infinitely outshine them. But we have no, we, we, we have no concept what that means because we're right in the middle of the cesspool now. How do I know this? Because we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, which says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Verse 17, and here's the gold for our light and momentary troubles. And, and remember, it's Paul who's saying this. It's Paul who has gone through all of the beatings and the stonings and the shipwrecks and the, and the horrendous life which he, he lived. So it's Paul who's saying this. This isn't someone in a, in, you know, who's in some, some palace somewhere. This is someone who's lived, um, lived suffering like we will never know. And, and he says this, for our light and momentary Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Okay? So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, which means it will come to an end. But what is unseen, all this other stuff, it's eternal. So here's a pop quiz to wrap up. What is the problem of evil? It is, if God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil? Question number two in the pop quiz, and I'm, as you can see, I'm giving you the answers. Well, isn't evil evidence maybe against God? No, because the only way that you can call evil evil, you, the only way you can call something evil is if there's an ultimate standard by which you can judge it. Therefore, evil, the presence of evil, is evidence for God. Question number three, where does evil come from? Evil comes from God creating a world in which we have free will. Number four, why doesn't God just wipe out all evil right now? The reason is because he's graciously patient with you. And number five, what's one way which we can deal with the effects of evil that we're facing right now by understanding that the weight of our troubles will be outweighed infinitely by the glory that is waiting for us in Christ. That's how we do it.